0: Okay, good morning. Good morning. Okay, we'll try that again. Good morning. Can you all smile at me, please? Okay, good. Can you hear me at the back, Ronnie? Yeah? All right. Okay, so we will look at the message for today. And uh, so far, we've made our way through six chapters of the Gospel of Luke. It's been good for me. I'm sure it's been the same for you as well. Heard some powerful, convicting sermons, and uh, we praise God for that. And all the brothers have been doing a wonderful job preparing and coming and teaching us here from the gospel. So we'll move to chapter 7, and we're going to see the first movements to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. People are increasing in their understanding of who Jesus is, and we're going to see that. But not yet, they haven't come to the full blown understanding like the understanding that they will have post the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but they are moving towards that as to who he is in his person. And in chapter 7, we will look at some of the episodes, two episodes for today, as was, as was clear from the reading of the text. It's on and off here. Uh, it's fine? Okay. So we look at chapter 7 today from verses 1 through 17. Okay. So here it is, first movements to faith and questions about Jesus. Let me begin with an illustration. Uh, you see the man on the slide, right? He is very familiar to a lot of us, probably not to the ones who were born after 2000, but uh, certainly, certainly for people around my age, right? So for the 20th anniversary of Larry King Live, a famous uh, television program, uh, you know, it was in the year 2005. And for the 20th anniversary of this program, Barbara Walters wanted to interview the man who interviewed the who's who of the whole world. So, this man, Larry King, uh, for those of you who are born after 2000, he's interviewed uh, the best luminaries of the world, presidents, prime ministers, and all of that. And so, Barbara Walters thought on the 20th anniversary of this show, she was going to interview this man and ask him some profound questions. And so she did ask him some very pertinent questions about his life, two of which were much more profound than the entire interview itself. The first question that Walters asked King was, what is your greatest fear? What is your greatest fear? And without any hesitation, Larry King immediately replied, it's death, Death is my greatest fear. Now, notice this interview is happening in the year 2005. Now, he was at the peak of his career. So, he wasn't even worried about his entire empire crumbling down. That's not one of his greatest fears. But his greatest fear is death. And then she asked a second question, a follow up question to this. She said, Do you believe in God? And then he responded again without hesitation. He said, No, I'm an agnostic. No, I'm an agnostic. So regardless of where we stand, regardless of our success or status, if we are uncertain about God and his existence, we will most assuredly be fearful of death, isn't it? If we are not sure about the existence of God, if we don't know who God is, we don't have a relationship with him, we will most assuredly be afraid or scared of death. It naturally follows. So please keep this illustration at the back of your minds as we work our way through the, through the chapter or the passage for today. Today's passage is from Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Now, after Luke writes about Jesus' sermon on the plain, which uh, Benji, our brother Benji, uh, spoke to us about last week. It was very convicting to me too. I'm sure it was to you as well. So he spoke about Sermon on the Plain and he describes now in chapter 7 several episodes where faith and questions about the identity of Jesus come together. Faith and the questions about who Jesus is, they both come together as the main themes. Now turn to chapter 7 please. Chapter 7 verse 1 all the way to chapter 8 verse 3. Chapter 7 verse 1 all the way to chapter 8 verse 3 is one unit of thought in the gospel of Luke. I'll show you how it is. Now it is bracketed by faith and events about faith. Look at chapter 7 and if you look at verses 1 through 10 which we'll be studying today, it is about healing of the centurion's servant. It's an incident or event about faith. And then it's followed by two passages which is from verses 11 all the way through 35. There are two episodes there that talk about who Jesus is, the identity of Jesus. So faith followed by two passages, two episodes about the identity of Jesus. And then verses chapter 7 verse 36, all the way till chapter 8 verse 3, it is followed by two more pictures of faith in action. Okay, so who is Jesus? Two episodes are bracketed by faith and faith in action. So the entire section here that Luke is bracketing for us with faith and faith in action is about who Jesus is and also how do you best respond to him. What is the best way to respond to Jesus as you understand who he is? The identity of Jesus and the best response to him, which is a response of faith. Both of them come together as important themes in this entire section. But we don't have time to get into the entire section. We'll just be looking at verses 1 through 17 for this morning. Now in the last two stories especially, which is verses 36 all the way till chapter 8 verse 3, women are characters in those stories showing that the work of Jesus or the ministry of Jesus is not based on gender. He cuts across genders and he goes and ministers to men and women alike. In the first story of the section that we're going to study today, a Gentile is showing faith and he he appreciates or commends the faith of the Gentile, showing that there is no racial distinction either in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus comes for all and Jesus is for all. Jesus comes for all and he is for all of us. So let's ask this question as we move into the passage for today. Who is Jesus and what should our right response be to him? Who is Jesus and what should our right response be to him? It's a very simple passage. We would have studied this uh, these two episodes in our Sunday schools or right from our Sunday schools, but I want to I want to ask you for your undivided attention, please, because these are profound passages from the Gospel of Luke. And we must look at them not as familiar passages, but as how and what God wants to speak to us this morning. So our passage tells us two things this morning about who Jesus is and what is an appropriate response to him. Two things, two very simple things this morning about who Jesus is and what must be our right, appropriate response to him. The first thing is in verses 1 through 10. And they say that Jesus has great authority and power and calls us to reach out to him in faith. Jesus has great authority and power and calls us to reach out to him in faith. When we go to Jesus in faith, recognizing who he is, When we go to Jesus in complete trust in him, identifying for who he is, he honors our trust. He commends our trust in him. He appreciates our faith that we express towards him. And that's exactly what we see in the first episode. We see here that in the episode, Jesus willingly responds to the faith of the centurion and heals his servant he willingly responds to the faith of the centurion and heals his servant. How did all of that happen? Now Luke very simply and lucidly presents that for us in four seamless scenes. And I want to take you through all those four scenes, so listen to me very carefully, please. In the first scene, which is a setting, the centurion's servant in Capernaum is sick. Look at verses 1 and 2 as I read them for you. Look at verses 1 and 2, please, into your Bibles. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. Notice here, Luke is supplying for us a seamless transition from the previous chapter. In the previous chapter, Jesus was sitting on a plane. It was called the Sermon on the Plain, the Lucan version of Matthew's uh, Sermon on the Mount. Right. So Jesus is sitting on a plane, and uh, it is located near Capernaum. And he finished speaking his sayings that he did, and now he is moving to Capernaum. Jesus journeys into the town. Now here is Capernaum. For those of you who are interested, this is Galilee, right? And Capernaum is very close here to what is this? This little water body, the Sea of Galilee. Right? So Capernaum is very close to that and uh, Jesus is now moving from the plain where he was sitting and preaching and he is moving into Capernaum. He journeys into the town. Now notice the two phrases that Luke is using here as he is transitioning into the story. The first thing that he uses is after he had finished all these sayings. So the story is clearly set after he finished preaching from the plain. So he finished preaching from the plain and he is moving into the town of Capernaum immediately after that. The second phrase that he uses is, in the hearing of the people. In the hearing of the people. Now the phrase in the original language actually means that the teaching of Jesus caused a reflection in the minds of people. The teaching of Jesus actually caused some mulling that people had to do, some reflection in the minds of people. Especially if you remember chapter 6 and verses 47 through 49, Jesus says, you know, it's not just about calling me Lord, Lord, but you must obey my word isn't it? So it's not just about hearing the word, you must obey my word. So there is an illustration that he gives about a man building on a solid foundation, on a rock solid foundation. He is a man who, not, who doesn't just listens to me, but also obeys my word. So he's talking about not just hearing, but also obeying the word of Jesus. And people have been mulling over all these things. People have been thinking about these things. And Jesus is closing chapter six with a call not just here, but also to obey him. And as he does that, and as people are doing that, he is transitioning into this town, the town of Capernaum. Now we come to the main part of the story. The main figure or the main character in the story is a centurion. And yet, in the Lucan version of it, which is what we're going to study today, he never explicitly comes to the fore in the passage. He's always in the background doing things. A centurion... We know in the Bible and in the New Testament times was in charge of about 100 men. And these centurions could be from a variety of nationalities. And they earned significant amounts of money. Now in our story here, the nationality of the centurion is unclear. Although verse 9 makes it clear to us that he is for sure not Jewish. So he was not a Jewish centurion. He could have been from any nationality. The thing about centurions was that they were not always regarded high or highly. There was no great esteem given to them in public. The reason is because they were not very cultured people. And most of them were not well educated as well. And so they were not regarded very highly. But this centurion here in our story is of a different character. And clearly we see from the story that he garnered a lot of good respect. And he had good reputation. Now Luke actually in his writings, Luke Acts, mentions about two different centurions who garnered such a good reputation with people. This is one of them and in chapter 10 of the book of Acts, it is Cornelius who was also a Roman centurion who garnered and had a good respect. Right. So now this centurion, everything was going well for him. He had good respect, he was also on good terms with the Jews and we'll see that a little later. But there was one big problem that he faced in his home. And what is it? Look at the text. His servant was sick and he was about to die. His servant was sick and he was very close to the point of death. The servant was not just like any servant in his home, but he was respected or highly regarded by the centurion. The word actually means that he was a valuable asset in the family. Or if he was a moral man who was given to good relationships, it means that he was dear to him. So the the servant was dear to this man, a valuable asset to the centurion, but life now for the, the servant was hanging by a thread. The situation seems quite serious. What does the centurion do? The centurion decides to take action, which moves us into the second scene. The second scene says... The Jewish leaders plead with Jesus on behalf of the centurion. The Jewish leaders plead with Jesus on behalf of the centurion. Look at verses 3 to 5. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly. Now, underline the word, earnestly, if you have the habit, saying, He's worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. The centurion had to act, we said, right? He does something very sublime. He does something very interesting. He'd heard about the ministry of Jesus, that Jesus is a traveling preacher, but not just that, he is also a miracle worker. And perhaps he'd heard about his miraculous works. But as a Gentile, the centurion thinks to himself that, he's probably on the wrong side to go and ask a Jewish rabbi for help. So there was some kind of a hesitation on the part of this Gentile to go and ask a Jewish traveling preacher, an itinerant preacher who belonged to the Jewish category, to come and help him. So what does he do? He sends some elders of the Jews as messengers to make a request for him. And most likely, these were Jewish civil leaders and These people went on behalf of the servant to go and talk to Jesus. Luke now, in mentioning that the centurion sent the Jewish elders to go and talk to Jesus, is actually indicating two things that form the main themes of Luke Acts. Now listen very carefully, please. Number one, the first thing that Luke shows here is how Jews and Gentiles can get along and have respect for one another which is one of the main themes of Luke Acts: how Jews and Gentiles can get along and have respect for one another. The second thing here is the non-appearance of the centurion in the story. I told you just now that he doesn't come to the forefront of the story. He's always working from the background. He's a Gentile. This may well indicate the fact that here is the example of a man who exercises faith without actually seeing Jesus. Here's the example of a man who exercises faith who has trust in Jesus without actually seeing him. Now, who is Luke writing this gospel to? Theophilus. Has Theophilus seen Jesus? No, but he can still have faith in him. You see how Luke is beautifully weaving the story here for Theophilus so that his faith will be strengthened, so that his faith will be bolstered. So the Jewish messengers that were sent by the centurion, they go to Jesus and they make a very simple request. They want Jesus to come and heal the servant. They go to him and they say, please come and heal the servant. The word heal in the original language actually means to bring someone safely through an ordeal. Somebody is going through an ordeal to bring somebody safely through an ordeal or to rescue somebody. It's the same word used there. The Gentile soldier here or the centurion believes that Jesus has the power to restore his servant and so he pleads for help. Now, the emissaries or the messengers, the Jewish elders who go on behalf of the centurion, they don't just go to the centur- uh, they don 't just go to Jesus with the centurion 's request, but they also lobby on his behalf. Look at what they're doing here. They are trying to persuade Jesus to come and help the centurion. The text here tells us explicitly the lengths to which these people went. Notice the word earnestly. The word in the original actually means that they were very serious in their efforts. They didn't simply go and talk on behalf of the centurion, pleading with Jesus to come to him, but they were actually earnestly trying to persuade. There was a seriousness in their efforts. What did they do? They implored Jesus by offering a commendation about the centurion. They come and say to him that Jesus, the centurion, is actually worthy of receiving this benefit from you. The centurion is worthy of receiving a blessing from you. Why? Two reasons are given. Number one, he loves our nation. He loves the nation of Israel. Now here's a Gentile who, who perhaps respected Jewish worship and has affection for the Jewish people. A contemporary illustration could be an ambassador from one country who goes and lives in another country for several years and uh, develops respect and love for the culture and becomes one of them. Right? It, it's the modern day illustration. So he may be somebody like that. And his affection, the elders say, is evident in the fact that he did one thing for us. What is it? He built us our synagogue. So here's a man, a centurion, who's clearly a man of wealth. I told you earlier, uh, as, as part of the sermon, that these people earned lots of money. right? So he was a wealthy man, but he was also a generous man. And therefore, he built a synagogue. So the Jewish elders plead with Jesus on behalf of the centurion. That takes us to the third scene, the third simple scene that Luke is taking us to, which is the centurion exhibits his faith and humility. Look at verses 6 through 8, please. And when Jesus went with them, when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, there's a second delegation going here, Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Notice the contrast here. What did the first emissaries go and say? He's certainly worthy of your blessing. But the centurion himself is saying, Don't trouble yourself, Lord. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now notice the comment that Luke makes here immediately. And Jesus went with them. And Jesus went with them. So there was a pleading that goes on, and all the commendation given by the Jewish elders. And without any hesitation, Jesus is walking towards the home. We just mentioned that. Jesus has compassion, and his compassion does not see any racial boundaries. So he's walking towards the home of a centurion. In the meantime, word reached the centurion that Jesus was coming home. And so he sent a second delegation to go and meet Jesus. And they report the response of the centurion in the first person. So the words of the second delegation are actually given in the first person, which are the words of the centurion himself. Now notice the term Lord that is used here of Jesus. It is a respectful term used of any significant person in the society. We don't have to read too much into that in this context. Lord means a respect, sir, kind of a thing. And he says, Jesus, please don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to have you step into my house. Jesus, you've come this far, but stop right there. Don't trouble yourself coming any further. Don't make the journey all the way home. Why? Because I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. There could be two reasons why you think so. Number one, firstly, the centurion had a very high view of Jesus. The centurion had a high view of Jesus. The second thing is explicit in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. The centurion recognizes that Jesus has access to God's power. He has been given the authority by God himself but he recognizes him either as a prophet or as a unique man of God. Now, this may not be a full-blown confession like we confess that Jesus as Lord post the resurrection, but this man is at least in a position where he is opening up to the possibility that God is working in and through Jesus, and he's recognizing that. But we must understand this. Before Jesus, great and small, Jew and Gentile, pale into insignificance. And this man, a centurion who has access to so much money and power and all these people, he is saying, I'm not worthy to have you come into my roof. So the messengers go and report to, the centuri- uh, to Jesus about the humility of the man as well. Look at the first person here again. He's saying, I'm not worthy to have Jesus come into my home, but not just that, I'm not even worthy to go and meet him as well. I'm not worthy to go into the presence of Jesus at all. Notice the humility of the man. He did not feel worthy of direct contact with Jesus. But that doesn't stop him from asking Jesus for help. All he's recognizing is his unworthiness to go and have direct contact with Jesus. But he does recognize that Jesus has authority and he recognizes that Jesus has access to God and that he is a powerful figure and all that he needs to do from a distance is just speak and it'll be done. Just speak and it'll be done. He has faith that the command of Jesus is all that is needed. The word of Jesus given unseen and from a distant and from a distance can deliver the precious servant from his illness. This is a profound insight that the centurion possesses and expresses. And here is the insight. Even though physically absent, Jesus can show his presence effectively. Did you hear that? Even though physically absent, Jesus can make his presence felt effectively. Because he has the power and the authority. And that's one of the key lessons for the readers of Luke, especially Theophilus, who no longer had Jesus, and we also no longer have Jesus here, still present with us physically, but we can see his presence effectively. And to drive Homer's point, the centurion is illustrating his understanding by appealing to his own role that he has in the society. Notice what he says. He says he's a man of authority. And therefore, all he needs to do is give an order, and the order is obeyed. He has servants. He says to one of them, go, and he goes. To another, he says, come, and he comes. And then he says, Lord, you have the power over disease and illnesses, as I have power over men. So just as I say to a man, my servant, come, and he comes immediately, I see that the forces that are attacking and troubling my servant are those that will submit to your authority. You're a man under authority. And he says, if my authority can produce instant obedience, how much more will your authority produce? So just say the word. Stand there and say the word. Now, what the servant here said, or the centurion here said, gives a clear understanding of what he thought about Jesus. And therefore you have a soldier of the world's most significant army talking about power in a man who's not part of the Roman army. And he says he is much more powerful. He has a greater authority. We come to the last scene here. Did somebody block it? Okay, there you have. All right. The last scene, Jesus commends the centurion's faith and heals the servant. Look at verses 9 and 10, please, quickly. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who have been sent home returned to the house, they found the servant well. So Jesus is responding to the request, and the request is one of surprise and commendation especially as he sees the centurion's confident declaration about the authority of Jesus. And he turns to the crowd, and in effect he says, learn from him. Learn from him. Learn from his faith. So Jesus commends the Gentiles' faith as something that is found nowhere in Israel. This faith here pictures what will often be the case in the book of Acts. While Gentiles are responding in great numbers, the Jews actually reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And more than this, Luke is clearly showing us that even pagans can understand who Jesus is and come to him in faith. But I want you to notice something in the text here. What is Jesus commending as unique here? What is Jesus commending as unique? The unique faith recognizes the authority of Jesus and the power of his word, not only over illness, but also in the face of physical absence and distance. Earlier, magicians used to come and touch, or they had to use a wand or something, and come into the proximity of the person they are trying to heal. But Jesus is able to stand at a distance and just deliver the word, and the person is healed. So the uniqueness about this faith is not just in recognizing the authority of Jesus over illness, but also in recognizing that Jesus works without spatial limitations. He's able to stand at a distance and still make his presence felt with his authority. In addition, Luke is also mentioning here that there is a resultant recognition of personal unworthiness. He says, I'm not worthy to go and get in contact with a man of such authority, a man of such uniqueness. Humility mixed with deep faith describes what Jesus praises and honors. Humility mixed with deep faith describes here what Jesus praises and honors. So, in commendation, that is, in commending the man, Jesus makes an indirect call to all of us who read the Gospel of Luke in a similar way. The question that he's asking you and me is, Will you have the same faith as the centurion has? Will you have the same faith as the centurion? Because such faith brings the approval of Jesus. Such faith brings the approval of Jesus. Now Luke simply notes that when the messengers returned, the slave was found healthy. The slave was restored to health. The power of Jesus and the presence of faith form a very powerful combination. Did you hear that? The power of Jesus and the presence of faith, they form a very powerful combination. But this healing demonstrates the authority of Jesus and that he has authority over everything. My dear brothers and sisters, in light of everything that we heard about this episode, let me ask you this question sincerely as I ask myself this question standing here. What does faith in Jesus mean to you? What does faith in Jesus mean to me? Now the moment I wrote down this thought as I was preparing, you could take this thought in any direction because faith is such a vast topic to talk about. But I just thought to myself, I'll define what faith in Jesus Christ is and talk about one aspect of faith which I think could be pertinent to a lot of us seated here. Firstly, what is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is acknowledging the truth of everything that God has revealed about Jesus in the word and trusting in him and receiving him and resting on him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Did you hear that? Faith in Jesus Christ is acknowledging the truth of everything the Bible says about Jesus Christ, accepting it as true and trusting in him receiving him and resting on him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Faith is a conscious choice. Faith is choosing to believe. It's a conscious choice. It is choosing to believe. I said I'll talk about one aspect of faith here and listen to me very carefully, please. There may be some of us seated here who have doubts about their faith. Now, these are things that especially happen. Now, they happen from time to time, but these are things that happen, especially when you're going through moments of crisis in your life. Perhaps illness, prolonged illness, or the death of a loved one, you know, carrier not working out, various things. So the questions come up, is my faith real? Have I really believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Why am I facing so many troubles? And I want to say that even Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, faced these questions. Even Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, faced these question. You know, when he was preaching in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, he'd be he there'd be seated in front of him some five thousand people listening to the gospel week after week, week after week. And his sermons would be written down on pieces of paper by people sitting in the congregation. They'd be rolled up and thrown onto every ship that left England so that it'll be taken to different countries and it'll be read out there. And people came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, powerful preacher of God's word. And yet, he went through times of doubting in his own life. There was one moment that he describes where after preaching to numerous sinners and pleading with them that Christ is the final one for salvation. And there is no one else by which you can come to God. After many people coming to him through his sermon, he himself doubted if God loved him and if he was saved. What is the cure for such a doubt? What are Christians to do when they despair of God's saving grace? And it seems as though to them that God does not love them anymore. You know what he did? He said, I will see the face of Christ by listening to the gospel again and again. So what he does is, on that Sunday morning, he preached to some 5,000 people. So that Sunday evening, he went to a very obscure church, a very small church. The pastor there who was preaching was not known to anyone. He was a very faithful preacher of God's word. There were some 30 people seated there. He goes to the last pew so that nobody recognizes him. He sits there, and the pastor is faithfully preaching the gospel. And as Spurgeon listened to the gospel, he begins to cry. He starts to cry, and he says, that's exactly what I believed. And then he says, oh, yes, there is spiritual life within me, for the gospel can touch my heart and stir my soul. The gospel can touch my heart and stir my soul. Brothers and sisters, if you're going through bouts of doubt in your life, am I saved? Does God really love me? Now these questions are real and cannot be neglected. But I want to plead with you this morning, go back to the gospel and you will see the power of it as, you, as it stirs your soul. And you will know that you're now crying and believing because you've already believed once. And it's just a phase of doubt that you're going through. And believe it or not, Charles Spurgeon was just as much a sinner as you and I, but graciously he had the same Savior that you and I do. And the same gospel that allowed Spurgeon to enjoy the waters of assurance in his day is deep enough and full enough to give us the same assurance that you and I have been saved by Christ as well. And that's for believers who've been doubting. But if you're not a believer in Christ, and you've been coming to church week after week, having no relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, I plead with you this morning to come to know Jesus, repent of your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you want to know further about him, come and talk to any one of us we 'll be willing to talk to you about him because there's no other conversation much more important than talking about Jesus. So the first thing that we learn this morning about uh, uh, is about who Jesus is and uh, what is an appropriate response to him, is that Jesus has great authority and power and calls us to reach out to him in faith. Then there's a second thing, and that is in verses 11 through 17. And they say that Jesus is compassionate and willing. Sorry. Okay. Jesus has life-giving word of hope and desires that we come to him for life. Jesus has life-giving word of hope and desires that we come to him for life. Renewal and reunion are not impossible dreams. Jesus promises to restore to life those who know his touch. Jesus promises to restore to life those who know his touch. And that's precisely what we see in this story. What do we see in this story? Okay. The first thing, the the, the important thing here is, That Jesus is compassionate and willing to comfort the widow of Nain and restore her son to life. And Luke explains this to us in three scenes. Let me go to the first one very quickly. This is the setting. There was a funeral procession in a town called Nain. Look at verses 11 and 12. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Now Luke is connecting these two events, but he's only using general terms, soon afterward. So soon afterward, Jesus comes into a small little town called Nain, and there is a great crowd that is following him. Mentioned only once in the Bible, which is here in this passage, Nain is also in Galilee. It's about 20 miles southwest of Capernaum that we saw and perhaps 6 miles southeast of Nazareth. We can't be very sure about where it is but that's where Jesus went. Now as Jesus approached the city and drew near to the city gate, he observed that there was a funeral procession that was going on out of the city to the burial site. So the way of life meets with the way of death here. The death here involved an only son And also Luke mentions that the mother was a widow. The description of the woman as a widow and now childless is very, very important here, especially it's an important theme in the Gospel of Luke. She has no family now and the emotion in this verse is very deep. The town here also shares in the grief as they gather with her. It's a sad setting as Jesus goes into Nain and he is witnessing. That's the first scene. Very quickly, second scene, Jesus cares for the needy mother and raises her son. Look at verses 13 through 15. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Now, Jesus takes the initiative here. They didn't come to Jesus for help. They were just on their way to the burial. Jesus goes and he takes the initiative and he's addressing the woman as he prepares to deal with her tragic situation. First, the first thing that he does is he offers a word of comfort to her. What does he say? Stop crying. Stop crying. Now, all the others would have been saying the same thing to her. But Jesus doesn't just here offer a word of comfort to her. He will reverse the very mood itself because he has the power and the authority over death itself. And we're going to see that. And then he goes to the open coffin, which is what beer is. And he he touches that and all the pallbearers, they stop. And with the authority, he addresses the young dead man personally. He says, I say to you, notice the authority, I say to you, and he calls he calls on the dead body to get up and the man sits up jesus confronts death here and this illustrates the extent of his authority jesus doesn't just have authority over sicknesses but he also has authority over death and luke has a fascinating way of writing he makes three simple statements to show that the man is actually alive look at this number 1 the dead man sat up very simple The dead man sat up, which means he's alive. Okay, so, But it also talks about the effortlessness with which the raising happened. If you think about Elijah in the Old Testament, especially in 1 Kings 17, he had to stretch himself three times over the boy. Yes, he was working with the power of God, but he had to stretch himself three times over the boy. And also, if you think about Elisha in 2 Kings 4, he touched his child with his staff, and later he lay over him once. But Jesus is performing these resuscitations or raising people from the dead effortlessly. The man sat up. Second thing. When the man sat up, he began to talk. Which means life was there. When the man sat up, he began to talk. Thirdly, he says, Jesus gave the boy back to his mother. There's a reunion. There was actually a funeral that was supposed to happen, but here is a reunion Between the mother and the child, the one, the relationship that was broken by death, which is now restored by Jesus. Now, given the massive nature of the miracle here, what do you think people will talk about? And what do you think people will say about Jesus? Which brings us to the last scene. Jesus is seen as a great prophet and news about him spreads. Look at verses 16 and 17. Fear sees them all. Again, this is a very typical Lucan way of writing. Fear sees them all and they glorified God saying, A great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Now listen please. Luke often expresses the emotional reaction that people have when they see the work of God in the words of Awe and respect. Awe and respect. Okay, So when people see the work of God, when people see a miracle, the immediate reaction that they have that Luke writes about is one of awe and one of respect. And look at what the words that are used by uh, Luke here. Fear sees them all, and they glorified God. Now, such respect or honor for God's work shows that this is a unique event. It doesn't happen on a daily basis. It happened because Jesus came onto the scene. It honors the majesty of the one who actually performed the miracle. And what do the crowd say? A great prophet has arisen among us. A great prophet has arisen among us. In calling Jesus a great prophet... The crowd actually, although they don't have a full understanding of who he is, in calling him a great prophet, they're actually putting him on a par with the first class of prophets, the first tier of prophets that Israel has seen. Elijah. Elisha, they perform great miracles, raise people from the dead. So at least Jesus for them is among the first class of prophets. You and I know as the readers of Luke's gospel, who Jesus is because he's not just a prophet he's much more than a prophet but here Luke is careful to indicate what people thought about Jesus in that context as they watched and witnessed this miracle and also in speaking of God's activity they say that God has visited us God has visited us if you remember the theme of God's visitation we already saw in the first couple of chapters. God has visited us in the person of the Messiah. As the Messiah came, it means that God has visited us. Later on, Luke will also mention that Israel has missed the time of God's visitation. We'll study the theme a little later. But those who feel that they are on the outside, those who are defenseless, those who are helpless... Through Jesus, God is coming to their aid and God is coming to the weak and Jesus is giving an invitation to experience God's renewed presence and blessing. And in his own typical style, Luke closes with a note about how the news about Jesus spread widely. From this episode, I just want to mention one application and then we'll close. You and I need to understand from this that Jesus offers hope both for this life and after. Jesus offers hope both for this life and after. Brothers and sisters, give me just a couple more minutes, please, and listen very carefully. The world has no hope. Hope is a word that is often used in a lot of talk shows and everything, but the world has no hope. Humans are clamoring to fill their empty lives with things, abuse, addiction, Alcohol, illness, broken relationships are common talks around us. They surround us. What a joy it is to know for us seated this morning here that Jesus came to bring hope and he is our hope and we have a living hope in him. It is a confident expectation that God is going to bring to fulfillment and to fruition all of his promises to us in Christ Jesus. You know, I recall the funeral that I was watching of a great man of God who died in his 90s. I, I don't want to mention the names here. Uh, I read some of his books and I was very touched by his testimony as well. He'd come to know the Lord in his 20s and for 70 years he served the Lord, writing his books and uh, preaching throughout the world and uh, you know, touching, um, touching millions and millions of people through his messages and through his discipleship series. And as the funeral was taking place, speaker after speaker came up to the podium and they talked about the long ministry that God gave for this man and how this ministry was a great blessing. As I watched that, it happened in England, so as I watched it from here, I thought about the great hope that we have as Christians of overcoming death. There is no other way to overcome death except in Christ Jesus, a hope that is clearly seen in the miracle that we saw in today's study. And I also recall one more story of a young woman, a young sister in the Lord, who recently went to be with the Lord. Our church, along with a lot of other churches, we'd been praying for her for a long time, for months together. And she was stricken with cancer and she went to be with the Lord. But as she was battling and we were getting message after message about her sickness and her pain, the question honestly that came into my mind is, Lord, why is she going through so much pain? And it's not just about physical pain that she is going through. But what about the emotional struggle that the people surrounding her, our loved ones surrounding her, would go through, watching her go through the pain? But you know, she's free from pain. You and I know that for sure. And one day, because of Jesus, she will have a glorified body. But I want to say this with this dual reflection about these two dear believers. What it tells me is this. Whether a saint dies in his late 90s or in his early age, tragically, the hope of what the miracle of the widow's son pictures is still vibrantly promising to every Christian. That death is not the end for us. We have a hope of resurrection we have a hope that boldly announces that you and I will be given glorified bodies, a body just like the body that Jesus had when he rose again from the dead. He is willing to raise us and transform us to be like him. No wonder the crowd that saw the miracle, they were filled with awe and they glorified God, says this particular text. And we should be as well, not simply take it as a Sunday school lesson that we used to take it when we were in Sunday school, but be filled with awe looking at the work of Jesus. May I quote a verse and close. Philippians 3:20 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, and we await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the very power that enables him to bring everything under his control is able to transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Is that your hope? Is that my hope? That's the one that should come to the fore of our minds as we study stories like these about Jesus. So what's the point of this morning's passage? The whole passage basically says, and Luke has a very simple way of putting things, we must understand that Jesus is a son of God and respond to him in faith. Understanding the identity of Jesus and running to him in complete trust is what God desires of us. I have a story to finish, but I will not do that. I'll just stop it here. It's 11 o'clock. Thank you for your patience and may the Lord bless you all. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word that is powerful, that talks about how your son ministered regardless of who they are, Jew or Gentile, men, women. His ministry did not see any distinctions. And we want to thank you, in our case, although we were far away from you, outside of the commonwealth of Israel, without hope and without God, you came after us. And as we were reminded this morning, because of your great mercy, you came after us in the person of your Son. You saved us and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus. We want to thank you for such a great blessing, O Lord. Thank you that you remind us of these great truths through your word that we are not just saved here for now but we are saved for eternity and one day in spite of the pain that we go through in this life O Lord we will have a glorified body just like the body of your son when he rose again from the dead and we will look like Jesus but help us to remember that everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Thank you for your word once again. We pray for every dear one seated here, O Lord. We pray that we'd all be filled with this hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And we also pray for those who don't know you. We pray that they would look at this, understand who Jesus is, and respond to, respond to him in faith, which is the right thing to do as we understand who Jesus is. We also pray for the rest of the time that we're going to spend together, the time of fellowship, and also, for John Paul especially as he leads the second session, O oh Lord, we pray that your blessing be upon everything that we do in Jesus' name.